It's, uh, it's New Year. Happy New Year. Trust everybody had a, a good New Year's Eve. Um, and by the looks of it, it looks like you guys got some good sleep. You didn't stay up too late and got here this morning. Um, so that's always a, a blessing. So um, just, uh, just real quick, um, I, again, just a, a privilege to be here. Um, uh, we have, my wife and I um, are, uh, many of you know, we're, we're missionaries or we're going to be missionaries to Cambodia um, and if you'd like to know just some more information, I have a, an email newsletter sign up over there on the table. You guys can sign up. We'd love, really, it's how can we pray for you. I've been in touch with, with Brother Paulson, but it's, it's something that lay is big on our hearts. How can we minister and pray to you, for you guys? Um, and so that, that's a, it's a huge ministry. Um, uh, Brother Hively just said, you know, we want to be committed to prayer this year. And, uh, and we're wholeheartedly uh, behind that. So uh, by all means, sign up for that. Uh, you can register on our website as well. But we want to know how we can pray for you um, as well. So, well, this morning uh, I've entitled uh, our message, Whose Life Is It Anyway? Uh, and it's a New Year's resolution. I, I, f- I figured this was appropriate beginning in 2017. And we all make New Year's resolutions, don't we? We always make New Year's, well, I shouldn't say always. If you're like me, I've given up making New Year's resolutions because it seems like I always don't fulfill them, I guess. Or I get halfway through the year, I'm like, eh, that was a stupid New Year's resolution anyways. Right? And uh, I lose five pounds and gain ten pounds. And it's like, that was my New Year's resolution. That's awesome. Right, so, uh, but but it is. It's it's the time of New Year's resolution. It's time we we take stock in our life and we go, okay, I want to do this better. I want to do this better. I want to do this better. I want to be be this, uh, or I want to be here next year, uh, either financially, spiritually, um, what have you. Right, and so, but this morning I want to I want to frame that uh, New Year's resolution in such a way as to really ask the question: Is uh, Whose life is it? Right? When we talk about New Year's resolution, whose life is it? And why do we make New Year's resolutions? And this morning, I want to, I want to give you really four, four different things um, and aspects of, of a New Year's resolution, specifically this morning on, on uh, uh, who, is your li- who does your life belong to and whose life is it? And so uh, this morning, uh, I want to start off with a, with a quote by John Keith Faulkner. And he says this, he says, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I'd rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. And that is uh, a calling card that Haley and I have, have kind of uh, attached ourselves to. We, we've been called to the mission field, Haley and I have, to go to Cambodia, a land that is in utter and complete darkness, in fact, less than 2% of the population in Cambodia are Christians, and so we believe God's call in our hearts and lives is to burn our light, our candle out in Cambodia so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, with that said, my heart aches for the United States. It's growing darker and darker every year. Sin is tolerated, guised in the cloak of love, steeped in the abyss of compromise. And as I look at the current state of our country's spiritual health, I I see a once raging fire of spiritual and moral standards, biblically aligned, now dwindling to coals on the verge of dissipating into mere ash and smoke. 
Our country is beginning to be overwhelmed with darkness. And my fear is, as Christians, we have become too afraid to stand firm and not compromise. There have been churches that have compromised on the issue of homosexuality in the guise of love. There have been churches that have decided to waver on the authority of Scripture. Christians have too often kept silent in workplaces and meeting rooms and and friendly conversations fearing what might be said or how we might be viewed. We dance around political issues and difficult topics and fear of offending someone or some group. And I, I think that sometimes we are afraid to speak the truth and to proclaim the gospel because we don't want to offend somebody. I might be wrong, but that's just what I, my observation. And not only in my own life, but just in others. And I want to, uh, to turn, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 39. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 39. And I want you to, to read with me what Jesus says about this. Starting in verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents, serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and, a, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Verse 23, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he should become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for they, there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. In verse 32, here he goes. He's going he's to sum this all up. He says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That verse, by the way, is very sobering. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. 
And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Long passage, but so much. Jesus here is instructing his disciples on how to be his witnesses and what to expect. Does he sugarcoat anything? Not at all. He explains the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, he gives all scenarios of things that, that happen. He gives, gives all different scenarios. That what we can expect and should expect because the gospel does what? It convicts and it pierces the soul. It convicts and it pierces the heart and the soul. It is offensive to the unbeliever because it exposes their sin and need for a Savior. It shows them who they truly are before a holy and righteous God. This morning as we dig into God's word, it's my, it's my goal, it's my desire to encourage, to motivate, and challenge each one of us to be soldiers and laborers for God's kingdom this New Year's. That is the New Year's resolution that, I am, that I'm hoping that we can all come to an agreement with this morning. We are called to the evangelistic call of ministering and sharing the gospel to our neighbors, to our co-workers, our friends, our relatives, and to each other. To each other. That's right, to each other. One of the most important things that my mom always taught me was you should always daily share the gospel with yourself. Daily share the gospel with yourself because it reminds you of your need for a Savior and who we are in relation to God. We all need to burn our candles out for the sake of gospel. It's just a matter of where those candles are to be burned. Haley and I are going to be in Cambodia. Majority of you are called to burn your candle out here in Ferndale in the surrounding area. So this morning we're going to look at the the mandate, the motivation, provision, and promises that Scripture lays out for His people. We're going to look at God's mandate, God's motivation, or our motivation, God's provisions, God's promises this morning. So those are the four points that we're going to hit on. And if you have your little, uh, there should be a, a, a piece of paper in there with notes yeah, that we have blanks in there. You can fill those out and follow along as, as we go this morning. So the first one is, is God's mandate. God's mandate. If you turn to Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Many of you know this, or at least we should know this, right? This is, um, you should know it by heart. If you don't, I encourage you to memorize it. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus' really last words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. He says this. It says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, when you look at that verse, or those verses, they're explicit. It's a direct command to his disciples and to us. 
It's a direct command to his disciples and to us. We are to do what? Go. Right? We're to go. We are to make disciples and, and not to choose who we make disciples of. It, it's inclusive of every nation. We are to teach and instruct them about what Christ taught them. For us, we are to instruct those whom we come in contact with and, and about the gospel, but also about biblical truths. We are not to compromise or to keep silent in any way. No matter what society says, no matter what government says, no matter what your job says, we are not to keep silent or compromise. We are to teach and instruct others to observe Scripture. Paul, in fact, Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, Ephesians chapter 3, 2, Colossians chapter 1, 25, and 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, views this command as a stewardship that God has entrusted to us. Do you know that? That the gospel is a steward. It's, it, we're stewards of the gospel. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you said, yes, I, I've put my faith and trust in Christ and what he did for me on the cross, knowing that there's nothing else that can save me. God has given you something special to take hold of, to protect, but also to share. We are stewards. His motivation, in, in Paul, in, in those verses, his motivation, Paul's motivation in sharing the gospel and keeping this command is because God has entrusted the precious news of his son's death and resurrection into our care. And we are to boldly share with others. In fact, Paul instructs Timothy and those who and those who read or read 2 Timothy to preach the word. I put this up on the screen. Can you guys see that? Can you read it okay? It's a little small for me back there. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He says this. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, you Timothy, you, First Baptist Church of Ferndale, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. You know, when you look at these verses, they're multifaceted with instruction regarding our, our stewardship of the gospel. Not only are we to preach the word, but we are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. And those are, are fascinating words when you actually get into the Greek and you, and you study them. The, the, the word reproof there in the Greek is elegeko which literally means to expose. It literally means to expose, to refute, to show one's fault. Wait a second. That's not what we're... That's, that's, that's not right. That's what we're, we're called to do. The word rebuke comes from the Greek word epitomeo, which means to denounce or express strong disapproval of. You get that? To denounce or to express strong disapproval of. Paul's telling Timothy that that's what one of his, his duties as a believer, as a pastor in, in the church is supposed to be. 
to reprove and to rebuke, to expose people's faults, to, to express with strong disapproval on something that is contrary to God. When was the last time we did that? You do it lovingly, right? He says to do it with, with patience and instruction, great patience and instruction, but we're supposed to do it. And finally, the word exhort is parakaleo, and it means to ask earnestly, to beg, or to plead. Isn't that beautiful? We're to expose, we're to strongly disagree, but then we're to beg, we're to plead for believers and unbelievers alike to align themselves with the truth of God's word. We cannot keep silent even when it means persecution. In fact, Paul earlier told Timothy in 3.12, get this, earlier, before this verse, in, in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says this. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, anybody finish it? Will be persecuted. It's, there, it's not may, it not could be, and not should be, it says will. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're to expect it. But we're not to shy away from it. We're not to keep silent because of it. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of how much. If I asked how many people have shared their faith with an unbeliever in the past six months, what kind of response would I get? Past six months. There's a company called Lifeway Research that did extensive research on just that question and came away with these stats. And I want us to, to take a look at them. I don't think you kind of see them. I highlighted them a little bit. They found that 80% of those who attend church one or more times a month, right? So our criteria here is, yeah. Loose, all right? So those who attend church one or two times a month believe, this 80% of them believe that they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. That's good news. 80% of them are like, yeah, I'm supposed to share my faith. Yet despite this conviction, only 61 or 61%, sorry, have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. So of those 80%, 61% of them didn't. Yes, I know I'm supposed to share the gospel, 61%, nah, not doing it. In the past six months. Guarantee that, that that goes up if we start narrowing the six months to five months, four months, three months, and so forth. In fact, it says three quarters of churchgoers, 75%, say they feel comfortable in their ability to effectively communicate the gospel. That's always one of my things. When I, I, I'm a, I, I lead the college group at a church. One of the things we always work on is sharing the gospel, ministering to, to others and, and being open. And, and it seems like every time I get the excuse, well, I'm not comfortable sharing the gospel. or I'm not sure how to strike up the conversation. Those are kind of the things. Well, according to this, this survey, 75% actually feel comfortable with it. 75% say, yeah, I, 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 I'm comfortable in my ability to effectively communicate the gospel. 12% say they don't feel comfortable telling others about their faith. The survey also asked how many times they have personally invited an unchurched person to attend a church service. 
right? So not, not even sharing the gospel, just, hey, six months, in the past six months, how many have invited somebody that doesn't go to, the ch- go to church or an unbeliever to, to your church or a church program? Zero. Zero. 33% of people say they've personally invited someone one or two times, and 19%, sorry, nearly half, that's, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> Somebody said, what? Nearly half, 48% of the church attendees responded zero. 50% almost said, nope, didn't, didn't, didn't invite anybody. 33% of the people said they've personally invited someone or one or two times, and 19% say they've done so on three or more occasions in the last month. So why do I bring this up? What does this mean? Honestly, simply means that we are not keeping the mandate Christ outlined for us in Matthew 18 and 28. Matthew 28. It means that we are retreating. It means we're, we're pulling back and hiding behind the comfy confines of our, of our church walls. We are silent and allowing evil to persist. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we are to do everything to what? Everything to stand firm. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, having done everything to stand firm. At all costs, we are to preach the word. No matter the season, no matter the circumstance, we are to resist in the evil day. Ultimately, it means that we are not tapping into the provisions that God has provided for us to accomplish this task. And so the next question is, well, what are those provisions? What are those provisions? We want to take a look at God's provision in sharing the gospel and being a laborer of Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 13. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Again, we're, we're probably very familiar with this, these passages. And I don't want to go into this um, too deep, but we will um, highlight a few of this. But let's, let's read chapter 6, verses 10 through 13 of Ephesians. Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the the rulers and the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. You guys notice here, where 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 does Paul's strength come from? Where does he say his, his strength comes from? It's from the Lord. It's from the Lord. It, it, in fact, the armor Paul's about to share with us is from God or of God. The armor is required if we are to stand firm against Satan in the onslaught of his dynamic schemes. It's not a suggestion. We need this armor if we are to survive spiritually. He goes on to remind us that our struggle is not against people. It's not against people. We're to love people. We're to share the gospel with people. We are to reprove, exhort, and and rebuke people in love with great patience. They're not our enemies. Who's our enemy? 
Satan. Right? Satan's our enemy. Because of who our enemy is, you guys, we are in absolutely need of the full armor of God. Because of our enemy and his power and, and his, his cleverness, we need what Paul's about to explain to us here in Ephesians chapter 6. We need the full armor of God, not just part of it, but the armor of God in its entirety, lest we fall, fail to resist and not stand firm. Here we go in verse 14. He says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which we will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When we look at this passage, there are really, if we break it down, there are six provisions that God lays out in metaphorical fashion in which we must adorn ourselves with spiritually. There are six provisions that Paul lays out in metaphorical fashion in which we must adorn ourselves with spiritually. The first one is truth. It all starts here, doesn't it? Honestly, it all starts. It all begins with the foundation of truth. It starts with girding ourselves with the truth of God's word, studying it, reading it, memorizing it and carrying it in our hearts and minds to meditate on it. One of Satan's most devastating and effective ways to attack is by, and he, it, this is, it's what he started with in the garden. What did he do? He took the truth and twisted it. He took the truth and he twisted it just a little bit. And then he takes that and twists it a little bit more, takes that and twists it a little more, and then pretty soon everything is contrary to God. And so it's, in my opinion, it's no, it's not by accident, no accident that Paul begins with truth as one of the, the first things that we had to gird ourselves with. See, Satan is the master of deceit. If we are not girded with truth, knowledgeable and capable of discerning error and false doctrines, then we will be consumed by the adversary. We will be consumed by the adversary. The second thing, that he tells us is righteousness. He says, make no mistake. Make no mistake. The most fatal attack on Christianity is our testimony and walk with Christ. The most fatal attack on Christianity is our walk and our, our, our testimony with those that are around us. It is why Peter implores his readers to keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Walking in righteousness and keeping a good conscience will keep the enemy's attacks at bay and will allow your offensive strikes to not be thwarted. You guys, we can only do this by accomplishing, or accomplish this through the power of the Holy Spirit, by walking according to the Spirit, as Paul reminds us in Galatians, right? Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Third thing, gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Are we prepared to share the gospel at a moment's notice? 
The idea of having our feet shod with the gospel illustrates the idea of us spreading the gospel wherever our feet take us. We are to be prepared with the gospel, and it's the gospel that motivates and moves us to stand our ground. Is wherever we're at, we should have the gospel in the forefront of our mind. The good news, bringing glad tidings of great joy. We just, you know, we sang about it all this month. Last month, I guess. This is January 1st now. All last month. The gospel of peace. The fourth thing, faith. Make no mistake, as we begin to wage war on the enemy, you guys, our faith is going to be tested. Our faith will be tested. It is why Christ laid out the cost of discipleship and what they will encounter as they carry out the call of God in their lives. Our faith comes from God. It is the gift in which he has given to us and in which we must rely on to extinguish Satan's arrows. Your faith will be tested, though. As if, if you make your New Year's resolution to be a willing laborer in God's kingdom, to share the gospel, to be more intentional in that, your faith will be tested. Your faith will be tested. The fifth thing, salvation. This isn't just a provision, but it's a promise as well. It's not just a provision, but it's a promise. We have the assurance of salvation so that we do not have to fear those who can take our physical bodies. Why? Because our citizenship is where? In heaven. That's where we belong. We're just passing through. This is just temporary. Citizenship is in heaven with Christ. We can confidently and boldly face our enemy without fear or trepidation about what the future holds for us because we know our future is what? Secure in Christ. Finally, the fifth thing he says is the word of God. It's an offensive weapon that is designed to cut through the facade of morality and convict the heart immorality and convict the heart and mind of sin. It is the only weapon in which we should attack the opposition. Because it's not about getting into uh, debates or getting into intellectual arguments with those that are around us, as is going to be the case. That's what they're going to try and do. It's not about that. It's about taking God's word and showing them the truth. What does God's word say? I can argue with somebody all day long, but it's the word of God that's going to convict. It's the word of God that's going to do the work. It's, going to, it's the word of God that's going to pierce the heart and mind. Not, not my words. He says in verse 18, Paul says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, he, he finishes with this. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and, and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. We are given one more provision and that is prayer, Right? Prayer. Prayer for the saints. That we would have boldness and to make known the mystery of the gospel. When was the last time that you prayed for a fellow believer that they would have boldness to proclaim the gospel? We pray for other believers all the time. 
for health, for work, for you name it. But when was the last time we were intentional about praying for one another to boldly take the gospel of Jesus Christ to their work, to their relatives, to their friends? When was the last time that you requested prayer for boldness in that area? And we have prayer requests, right, all the time. And that's awesome. I, prayer requests, I, I always lead out college group with, with prayer requests. What, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Rarely do I get the request, I need prayer to share the gospel. The thing that fascinates me is when you read Ephesians chapter 6, what does Paul ask? In fact, he, he begs the church of Ephesus for this. What does he ask them? Pray for me. Pray that I may be bold to share the gospel. You guys, Paul is our hero. One of the greatest missionaries probably I ever lived. We elevate him. And yet he is telling the church of Ephesus, I need prayer. I need to be bold and I need you to pray for boldness for me. And we need to be the same way. Pray for us. Pray that we would be bold in proclaiming the gospel. Our motivation. What should our motivation be? What should our motivation be? Yes, we should do it because we are told. But it should go much deeper than that. There are many motivations, you guys, that I I could share with you this morning, but I want to concentrate on on just two. The first is our mutual love for God. Knowing and believing that he died on the cross for my sin and suffered in my place should motivate me to obey his commands. I put a verse up there for you, 1 John 5, 3-4. Read it with me. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. John tells us here that if we truly love God, we will obey his commands, and guess what? They're not going to be burdensome. We're going to enjoy doing it. We're going to enjoy doing it. How then can 61% of Christians who profess that they are comfortable with articulating the gospel be so apathetic toward sharing the gospel? How is that possible? Do we as Christians view the command to share the gospel as a burden? Do we view that as a burden? And I'll be honest with you, I'm a missionary, and there are times where it's like, it's a burden. It's because my mindset's wrong. I have a horizontal view rather than a vertical view. I have a selfish view rather than a selfless view. If we have and view it as a burden, we must evaluate our hearts and meditate on the cross of Christ. Paul was motivated by the cross of Christ to live for him, including being a witness. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus died for me, and in him 
I have died to myself, and my life is now his life. Therefore, what he did, I do. But even more, it is not me that does it, but Jesus does it by living in me and through me. That's, a, that's what Paul is saying. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says that the love of Christ in the NAS, it says, controls us. In the NIV, I kind of like it a little bit better, the word that, that is translated there. It says the, 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 the love of Christ compels us. Compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Paul was motivated by the love of God displayed on the cross. And you know what? So should we. That should be our motivation for being laborers in God's kingdom. The second motivating factor should be the fact that God deserves the reward for his sufferings. Think about that. God deserves the reward for his sufferings. I want to show a quick video of a man named Paris Reedhead. He's a missionary, or was a missionary to Africa. He speaks of his initial motivation to share the gospel in Africa specifically, but then candidly shares God's work on his heart and what should truly motivate us to be God's witnesses. And, and this is... oh There it is. And this is, guys, this can be a little shocking on his view, but it's, it's truth. And I want you to listen to it, read the words... It's powerful. If you'll ask me why I went to Africa, I'll tell you I went primarily to improve on the justice of God. I didn't think it was right for anybody to go to hell without a chance to be paid. So I went to give poor sinners a chance to go to heaven. Now I had to put it in so many words, but if you analyze what I've just told you, you know what it is. That I was simply using the provisions of Jesus Christ as a means to improve upon human conditions of suffering and misery. And when I got to Africa, I discovered that they were poor again, even running around in the woods waiting for looking for someone to tell them how to go ahead. That they were monsters of iniquity. They were living in honor and false defiance of far more knowledge of God than I ever dreamed they had. They deserve hell because they utterly refuse to walk in the light of their conscience and the light of the law written upon their heart and the testimony of nature and the truth they do. And when I found that out, I assure you, I was so angry with God that one occasion in prayer I told him that it was a, a mighty little thing he'd done, sending me out there to reach these people that were waiting to be told how to go there. But when I got there, I found out they knew about heaven didn't want to go there. And they were out there saying they wanted to say it. I went out there motivated by humanism. I'd seen pictures of lepers, I'd seen pictures of ulcers, I'd seen pictures of native funerals, and I didn't want my fellow human beings to suffer in hell eternally after such a miserable existence on earth. But it was there and Africa that God began to tear through the overlay of this humanism. And it was that day in my bedroom with the door locked that I wrestled with God. For I here was, I was coming to grips with the fact that the people that I thought were ignorant and wanted to go out and go to heaven and 
didn't want to take time to talk with me or anybody else. They had no interest in the Bible, had no interest in Christ, and they lost their sin and wanted to continue in it. And I was to the place at that time where I felt the whole thing was a sham and a mockery, and I could told it no good. And I wanted to go home. And there I was in my bedroom. As I faced God honestly with what my heart felt, it seemed to me I heard him say, Yes, will not the judge of all the earth do right? But he's not lost. They're going to go to hell, not because they have an earthly lost. They're going to go to hell because they are sinners who love their sins and because they deserve hell. But I didn't send you out there for them. I didn't send you out there for their sins. And I heard as clearly as I've ever heard, though it wasn't a physical voice, but it was the echo of truth of the ages finding its way into an open heart. I heard God say to my heart that day something like this. I didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. I sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserve hell, but I love them. And I endured the agonies of hell for them. I didn't send you out there for them. I sent you out there for me. Do I not deserve the reward of my suffering? Don't I deserve God not deserve the reward for our suffering? Because that question should echo in our hearts and minds as we wrestle with the truth of what it means. The answer to that question is unequivocally yes, God deserves the reward for his suffering. But how is God rewarded for his suffering? Hebrews 12, 2 says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He goes, his reward is us. His means is us, his messengers is us, and his call is to us. Finally, God's promise. So we have the mandate, we have the motivation Now we have the promise. Back in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we see a promise that I think we as Christians forget to hold on to. Sometimes we we gloss over it. That motivation is that all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to Christ on heaven and on earth. If you meditate on this one simple truth, we should have nothing to fear and no reason to keep quiet. Right? Christ has supreme authority. 
In fact, when you think of the end and, and what takes, takes place at the end, it should motivate and encourage us to be God's ambassadors no matter what the circumstance or the situation. I think too often we as Christians begin to worry and fret about what is happening politically and spiritually in our nation that we become paralyzed. In football, we call this paralysis by analysis. We call it paralysis by analysis. You're analyzing the play, what's going on, and instead of actually going to the ball and making a play, you're standing still because you're, you're overwhelmed with what's going on in the play and all the different aspects and, and things that are going on. We tend to get caught up in our rights as Americans and what is constitutional and what isn't and, and we forget the most important thing that it, and that's sharing the gospel. After all, it's sharing the gospel that is what will change hearts and move our country in the right direction, is it not? If we stop and remember that Christ has authority over everything, including our lives, as we saw in Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 32, then we should remember who wins in the end. Who wins in the end? Christ. God does. God wins. We know how the story ends. Right? You know, one of the, one of the, I, I love horror flicks. I don't know why. I, I think it's the suspense. I like to, to get, like as I'm watching it, I like to get afraid and be on the edge of my seat. But I can only watch them once. You know why? Because I know how the movie ends. I can't watch it again and be on the edge of my seat anymore because I know how it ends. It's ruined that feeling of trepidation for me. Because as, as believers in Christ, we know how this movie ends. It ends with God, with Christ coming down on a white horse, with trumpets sounding and Satan being thrown into the lake of fire for eternity and us ruling with Christ for eternity, praising and worshiping him with peace in a perfected state. This is just temporal. Praise the Lord. It's just temporal. We know that no matter what happens in the political arena, no matter what happens around the world, no matter how many Christians are martyred or, or what laws are passed, when we believe or we feel like the enemy is winning, just remember that we know the ending to this book. God wins, and the only question that remains is, are we engaged in the battle? Are we in the game? Another promise that we have is that God loves us and will take care of us. It may not be in the way that we want or think he should, but we have the promise of Christ never leaving us or forsaking us. Don't we? Matthew 28, 20. We also have the promise that we are precious to him in Matthew 10, 28. That we read at the beginning. Not a sparrow falls without his knowing, right? Right? How much more important are we to him? God has magnificently and wonderfully included us in his grand plan as instructed us or entrusted us with his gospel. We all have but one candle of life to burn. 
how will you choose it to, to burn it in 2017? What kind of New Year's resolution are you going to set? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we are privileged to be called Christ followers. Lord, I am so thankful for the cross. I am so thankful that your son came to earth a little over 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life, gave us an example to follow, and then went to the cross, endured the cross, suffered so that we might have life. And Father, this morning I am so privileged to be able to share this New Year's with First Baptist Church of Ferndale. And Lord, I, I pray that each one of us, each one of us would burn our candles out for you. Lord, that we would be motivated by mutual love of you and be motivated knowing that you deserve the reward for your suffering. Pray that you be glorified the rest of this day. Lord, may our actions, may our words, may our thoughts be honoring to you. In your name I pray.